Take your Bibles, go to Psalm 145. If I haven't seen you since my return, hey, I'm back. Um, be afraid. I haven't spoken publicly. Last week I did, and I made it through almost on time, which that was an absolute miracle. But this, uh, uh, this uh, recent sabbatical that I took, about 10 to 12 weeks of which, um, was um, amazing, awe-inspiring. It has changed my life forever. Um, my wife is still recovering from it, so you can pray for her. Um, but in reality, it's the first time in over 30 years that I wasn't teaching or preaching every week. I began that when I was 17 years old. Uh, went to a little boarding school, um, not of my own choice. We'll talk about that later. Um, it's a Christian boarding school, and my peers uh, elected me, which I thought was a cruel joke, um, as student body chaplain, which meant every Wednesday night the entire student body would gather and I would get up and have to share a devotional message. I am thankful there are no such things as recordings from those days, um, because some of the stuff I said was certainly, if not heresy, it was awful. So um, on my sabbatical, one of the things I had the privilege of doing was doing a lot of travel in the first month of June. I got to go out to California, which is one of my favorite places on earth, visually speaking. <laughs> Um, it is a gorgeous area. I'm usually down between the San Diego, L.A. area and, and California. And one of the things that I, I um, got to do last time I was out there, and I took advantage of it this time as well, was I, I played golf. I like to play golf. I played a lot of golf this summer. A lot of golf. Too much golf. Um, but I got to play a couple of courses out there, and one that I really wanted to get to and I got to twice was some of you may recognize the name, Tory Pines. I'm pretty fancy that way, yep. Uh -huh. Tory Pines is a public course, but it is the one that the U.S. Open is held at regularly, and so they just had the U.S. Open there again last year. Um, so I had the opportunity to go there, and let me, let me just show you something. I mean, this, is, this is the view, right? That's me. I wrote it down so I wouldn't forget. 15th hole on the north course. They have two courses. And you stand up, and you're way up there, and you hit down to that. Now, here's the crazy part. When I was getting ready to take this shot, I actually had to wait because there were paragliders going by. And it would be just my luck. <laughs> Ping! And one, yeah, falls out of the air. It'd be awesome. Um, that didn't happen. Uh, this last time I was out there, I got to play the south course, which is the more famous course. Runs along the ocean the entire way. Here's another beautiful picture that I took and sent to my family. It's the third hole on the south course. And I took this picture and I sent it to my entire family and said, I'm having so much fun. This is what awaits me on my next shot. And you know those tracker things they have on television? Well, I got my shot tracked for this hole. <laughs> um, so the next picture I took was, was that. <laughs> let, me, let me get that off the screen and go back to that one. Um, anyway. The reason that I wanted to put that in front of you, the reason that I'm sharing this with you is, first of all, to tell you how amazing I am at golf and to show the proof by the tracker. But I wanted to, to tell you that I was golfed with um, three other guys. One guy um, was a fellow from out there who I had met through a seminar. Then two other young men, college age, who lived in San Diego area. They were, in fact, they lived 15 minutes from Torrey Pines. Um, and so as we were going and we are talking, they're making fun of us because I'm from Maryland and the guy that I was golfing with is from Texas somewhere. And they're like, yeah, we live right here and we like barely ever play here. Like, how is that possible? No, I get it. It's expensive. It's, it's, it's very expensive. It's, it's one, probably 160, 200 bucks to play a round of golf here. 
It's expensive. Oh, except for this. It's not expensive for them. If they live in San Diego County, they can play that course as many times as they want for 60 bucks. But, you know, we, don't, we just don't golf here that often. I mean, it's here. We played it plenty, but yeah, whatever. And I'm like, I would be here. My wife and I would have to go into counseling. I would be here so much. See, what had happened was they were so used to it, they'd become blind to what they had, right? The beginning of my sabbatical, one of the conversations I had with my counselor, uh, he was pressing me and asking me to, to pray a big prayer, to ask something big of God to really dive into this. And one of the things that I came back with in one of our next sessions was, I think what I'm going to pray is, God, just show me, is the Moses prayer, show me your glory. I want to see it, right? And here was God's resounding answer. You have it, moron. You just don't go there every week. You just have ceased to recognize it. It's right before your face. Here I am. And when you fail to recognize the the glory of God regularly, what ends up happening is you end up living a life that has lost the awe of God. And when you've lost the awe of God, then you're, you're in a lot of trouble. You end up with a very boring Sunday morning faith. And I'm going to tell you this, if you live in light of the awe of God, there is nothing boring about it. What, what's led us, and I'm going to say many of us, we, we are glory adjacent and yet there's no awe that fills our life, our heart. We've stopped looking at who he is. We've started to look at another and given them the awe that is only reserved for him. In fact, we've actually forgotten who we truly are, and that leads us to the place where we fail to see his glory and we cease to be in awe of him. Look at, look at the first eight verses, Psalm 145. I'm going to read it again for us. I exalt you. My God is the king. I bless your name forever and ever. I will bless you every day. I will praise your name forever and ever. The Lord, he is great. He is highly praised. His greatness, it's unsearchable. Now one generation is going to declare your works to the next. We'll proclaim your mighty acts. I'll speak of your splendor, your glorious majesty, your wondrous works. They will proclaim the power of your awe-inspiring acts. And I will declare your greatness. They will give a testimony of your great goodness. They will joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and great and faithful love. I could, I could go on through the rest of the psalm, and, and we just don't have the time to dig into all of it like it deserves, so I would encourage you, just keep reading that psalm this afternoon and continue to pour over it. But what I want to tell you is this, this psalm, Psalm 145, is the, the last psalm that David wrote. Now, although that's true, this isn't about David. This psalm is written as an acrostic. It follows the Hebrew alphabet. So, so basically every verse starts with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. But, but this psalm is not about this poetic, stylistic approach of David, the master poet. This psalm is about the glory of our great God, a glory that is supposed to lead us to, look at all of the things that he says. Look, praise, exalt, declare, proclaim, speak, celebrate, joyfully sing, thank, 
tell others. I mean, he's, he's laying all these things. This is what you're going to do when you recognize the glory of God. And yet, this psalm is not about all of the things that we're supposed to do. That's not the point of the psalm. The point of the psalm is the glory of God. And it comes with one singular goal, that you and I would be struck with the awe of God. And we would see his glory. We would fixate on it. Meditate on it. And allow it to bring us awe. My concern this morning is that many of us have been in the presence of his glory regularly, and yet we aren't in awe of him. David tells us who he is. He says his name is the Lord. The Lord. We're introduced to this name in, in Exodus chapter 3. You're going to remember Moses is standing before the, the bush that just doesn't, it's on fire, but it doesn't go away. It doesn't disintegrate. It doesn't burn up. And God is in the bush and he's speaking to Moses. And Moses says, okay, if I'm going to do what you're telling me to do, God, who should I say has sent me? And God's response is, I'm going to tell you who sent you. Tell him, I am has sent you. The great I am, it's more than just a name, it's his character, it's his nature, it's his being, it's who he is. It's, it, 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 it speaks to his eternal self-existence. He needs no one else in order to exist. Do you know that the name that God gives to Moses, the name he refers to himself later in scripture, the great I am is, is in the present tense. That means there is never a time when he isn't. So you look back in the past and you know God always was so you can take great comfort. Everything that has ever happened has been underneath his watchful care. This isn't a time, there's no time that he won't be because his name is I am. So that means whatever tomorrow holds, no matter how difficult it might be, no matter how terrifying it might be, we can face tomorrow with courage because he's already there with the strength to sustain you. There's, there's, there's no other who determines what it is that he does because he is. There's no other that forces him to act a certain way. He exists without the need for anybody else, so he's free to do what he pleases. There is no one else like that. So my name's I Am, the Lord. David tells us of his greatness. His greatness is unsearchable, verse two. Sorry, verse three. Greatness has lost its meaning. Anything can be great now. Uh, an athlete can be great. A restaurant can be great. The kind of lot of deodorant can be great. We've, this word has become nush, mush. It's become nothing. And what David's saying is, no, he, he deserves so much praise because he is so infinitely great. He's so infinitely great that his greatness is, in fact, unsearchable. The, the, the word in the King James is unfathomable. You're going to get to the deepest part of the ocean, and you're going to drop the line to figure out how deep it is, and you will never be able to even touch bottom. That's how great our God is. All the human minds in all of history combined can't capture how great God is. All the theology that's ever been written is just a drop in the bucket. Folks, you and I are like, like toddlers trying to assemble a jet engine when it comes to the greatness of God. Now I know. Last week I made fun of newborns. This week it's toddlers. Adolescents, teens, 
Um, millennials, you should all be worried. The only group that doesn't need to worry anymore, grandparents. <laughs> yeah, you got that's right. Go team GP. <laughs> but we'd be, we'd be fools, right, to be like, all right, let's hire a bunch of toddlers, line them up, put the tools in front of them, give them the materials, okay, let's see what you can put together for us. That's Lockheed Martin's new approach, right? You'll be lucky if they assemble anything. Forget a jet engine. Similarly, you could take all of the great theologians of Uniontown Bible Church, you could take all the great theologians of Maryland, of the United States, of the entire world, for all of time, and we won't be able to simply scratch the surface about the truth of who God is. That's what it means that he is glory. That's what it means to stand before him in awe, that he has a greatness that is so great, so deep, you can forget about ever touching the bottom of it. He talks about his, his majesty, Verse 5, I'll speak of your splendor, your glorious majesty. The implication there is royalty. That is something us as Americans do not relate to very well. But if a queen or a king was to enter and a commoner was standing there, they would, they would tower in fear. They would bow before them. They would be completely inspired. In fact, what's crazy is although as Americans we don't have that in our culture, we still gravitate towards the glory and splendor of majesty, don't we? How many of you watched the last royal wedding? Raise your hand. Liars! <laughs> Revelation pictures a response to his great majesty as everyone bows before him, falls before him, cries out to him. He's king, he's lord, there is no other in everyone needs to lay aside their weapons. Everyone needs to bow the knee and celebrate his splendor, his greatness, his authority, his rightful rule. In fact, he is so majestic that it's not just you and I who will bow before him. Every king known to man must fall because he's the king of kings. It says he is good, he is Righteous, all that he does is good. All that he does is right. He's the standard for what is good and right. There, there is absolutely no other. So now, so now what you have is as God being self-existent and, and self-sufficient in his sovereignty, in his eternal nature, in his unsearchable greatness, in his majesty, we can find what we need for each and every day and what we will find will always be good and right. And what we are supposed to do, David is saying, is live in light of who he is. And when we live in light of who he is, we are overcome with awe. At least we're supposed to be. Do you know what awe means? Talk about a word that's lost its meaning. Everything is awesome. Awe actually is relatively quiet. It's to stand with your mouth slightly open and your eyes widening and your heart rate rising. You feel the blood pulsing through your fingertips as you see something you have never seen before and you'll never be the same because of. <laughs> when you know who God is, is that what fills you? No, because I think we regularly forget who he is. In fact, we regularly forget 
what he's, he's done. We need to fix our eyes on him. We need to fix our eyes on what he's done. I can't command you to be in awe of him, okay? That's not one of those things where it's like, <laughs> I got the, I, the picture. I think God just gave me an illustration. We'll see. You ready? None of you can point at me and go, like kale. I can't like kale. I need a rebirth of the taste buds or something. I need to be blinded. I need to my nose stopped up, and I'm still not going to like it. I might endure it, but I'm not going to like it. I can't like it unless something genuinely changes. I can't tell you, be in awe. Something has to change. And what has to change is where you're looking. You need to fixate on him, on what he's done. You need to look at, the psalmist tells us, David tells us clearly, look at his mighty acts. He talks about his wondrous works. His great power. I'm going to make you do a little work this morning. It's no fair that I have to show up on Sunday and be the one that works. Although, you know, as we say, it's the only day I work, right? (laughs) I want you to do a little work right there. When I say this, when I say David says what he wants you to do, he says we are going to talk of his mighty acts. We're going to talk of his wondrous works. We're going to talk of his great power. What I want you to do, just with your family or whoever you're sitting there with, I want want you to, 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 to think of a Bible story that pictures his mighty acts, his wondrous works, or his great power, and just, just share that with each other. Like This is the story that comes to mind when I think of how mighty his acts are, how wonderful his works are. But here's, here's an extra step that I want you to take, okay? An extra step. You have to know what book of the Bible it's in. And this is free, but this is why. So many times we're like, you know what God said? And then we say something, and it's like, God must be like, I never said that! Because we're, it sounds sort of moral, so we go, no, 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 make sure you know where it is in the Bible, okay? So maybe you're, you're working through the index or Googling or whatever in the next five minutes, but, but I want you to take, take the next three, four, five minutes. What wonderful works, great acts, wondrous works, mighty acts, what powerful things, what greatness that God has done in Scripture is the thing for you, like, that's God. All right, talk amongst yourselves, three, four minutes. All right. There's plenty of them. Genesis chapter 1 and 2, you've got the very creation, right? God speaks into nothing, and he is so powerful that all of a sudden something exists. You've got Exodus chapter 7, 12, 14, a whole number of places where Moses comes in as a represent, representative, there we go, of God and says, I'm going to... To, to, to bring my people out and, and to get Pharaoh's attention, God does these incredible miracles of blood, frogs, gnats, flies, livestock to begin to die. The boils come upon the people, the hail falls, locusts come, darkness covers the ground or the, the, the land, and, and, and then the last one, the firstborn, is, is dead. Pharaoh relents and lets Moses lead his people out of Egypt. And as Moses goes, he faces the Red Sea. He's got the Egyptian army and a really mad Pharaoh behind him and a great body of water before him. And it's like, I'm done. There's nothing I can do. And God says, yes, there is. Take a step. Here we go. The waters build upon themselves. And the Israelites march through dry land to the other side. And when Pharaoh and his army get in, the water crashes down. And now there is no one chasing Moses and the Israelites. Moses and the Israelites continue through the wilderness, but they are not alone. They are, in fact, led by God, by a pillar of fire by night, a pillar of cloud by day. They get hungry, and God continues to provide them. He provides them manna, which is like heavenly Pop-Tarts uh, that end up on the ground, right? They're like, oh, delicious. 
Um, and, and there's all the amazing things that are happening that God is doing, but what he's doing is he's demonstrating to his people, I am. The story of Joshua going to Jericho, right? Let's talk about that for a minute. Who in their right mind comes up with that as a plan? Well, I've got an idea tomorrow. Let's walk around the place. Tomorrow. Let's walk around the place. Tomorrow. Let's, and they do it six days. And the seventh day, let's, let's walk around the place seven times since we're in shape now. Get out your trumpets, blow it, and shout. And the people had to be like, okay, doo-doo-doo, ah! And the walls just collapse. And I think the people who were more astonished were not the people of Jericho, I think it was the Israelites. But the story of Gideon, as Gideon is called into battle against the, the Midianites, there's 32,000 Israelites against the, the Midianites. And it says that they looked like if you stood on the top of the hill down at a swarm of locusts. They had so many people, so many soldiers. And, and Gideon's like, all right, God, you want me to fight them? I got 32,000. Let's see what happens. And God's like, oh, not, a little, little soon. Slow it down just a little bit. How about this? Just make this announcement for me. Are any of you afraid? Anybody? Don't be bashful. If you're afraid, you can go home. And 22,000 are like, see ya. So now Gideon's got to be like, hey, that was pretty funny, God. That was a great one. Yeah, okay, good. So I got 10,000 left. 10,000. 10,000. You want me to take 10,000 of these people, many of them not trained, into battle against armies that look like a swarm of locusts because there's so many of them. This, go, okay, you said it. We're going to do it. And God said, oh, that's not what I said. You still have too many people. So what I want you to do is I want you to go down to the river, and I want to see who really is a soldier and who really isn't. And so bring them to the water, and the one who gets to the water kneels with their spear still in hand and slowly scoops the water to their face. Those are the ones you want. The ones who get to the water and just stick their whole head in, you can send them home. And so he's like, all right. So, so Gideon's got to be like, all right, guys, time for a water break. There's a stream. Let's see what happens. Oh, that's not good. <laughs> He's down to 300 men. And God says, almost. I want you to leave your spears, your shields, your swords, your bows, your arrows, your catapults. I want you to leave all of those behind. Instead, what I want you to do is I want you to take a, a horn, a bucket, and a light. Give one to all 300. I'll explain more later. Now, imagine that meeting. Here comes Gideon through all 300 soldiers, and they're all like, okay, there's only 300 of us. Remember those 22,000 who were scared? Can I go now? And he's like, no, 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 we're good, we're good. Hey, give me your spear for a second. Here you go. Give them a, a bucket, a trumpet, and a light. And the guy's going to be like, what I want you to do, Gideon, is I want you to have all 300 men take those trumpets, take those buckets, take those lights. Put the light inside of the bucket, and I want you to smash that bucket. I want you to blow the horn, and I want you to shout as loud as you can the sword of the Lord and Gideon. And let's see what happens. Let me read chapter 7 of Judges, verse 21. Each Israelite took his position around the camp. The entire Midianite army, they began to run. They cried out as they fled. When Gideon's men blew their 300 ram's horns, the Lord caused the men and the whole army to turn on each other with their swords. So now... Gideon has won with the most ridiculous of strategies ever. Why? Because God said, you want to see my glory? If you want to see my glory, then you can't enter this thing with any strength. 
the strength has to be mine. You got Elijah and the prophets in 1 Kings 18. We're going to have this competition on top of the mountain. The prophets of Baal get their offering together. They surround the altar. They start talking and shouting and yelling and dancing and calling on their false god to, to come and take the sacrifice. We just, and so they just look like complete morons. And they're doing this for hours upon hours upon hours until Elijah is like, you can picture him leaning up against a rock like, all right, guys, listen, maybe he's traveling. Maybe he's talking to somebody else. Um, maybe, maybe, maybe he's in the bathroom. That, that's what he says. I'm not making that up. <laughs> And the prophets start cutting themselves and screaming louder and carrying on. And finally, Elijah's like, all right, my turn. Let's see whose God is real. So he gets his sacrifice. He puts it on the altar. Then he thinks, he says, give me four barrels filled to the top of water. And they come. They dump it on top of the sacrifice. He says, do it again. Four more barrels. Do it again. Four more barrels. Now, now this thing is saturated, and it's absolutely soaked from, from top to bottom. There is no chance that this thing is ever going to start on fire 1 Kings 18, verse 36, the time for the offering of the evening sacrifice, that prophet Elijah approached the altar, and this is what his prayer was. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel, and I'm just your servant. At your word, I've done all of these things. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so this people will know that you, the Lord, are God. And the Lord's fire fell and consumed the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, the dust. It licked up even the water that was in the trench. And when the people saw it, they fell face down and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. They said, there is only one. And it ain't the one who we were looking at. Any of you, let's see. Any of you mention Exodus chapter 33 in your discussions. Raise your hand. Okay. Exodus chapter 33 is this fascinating exchange between Moses and God. The people of Israel have already started worshiping that golden calf. That went really bad. Moses is standing before God. And they're getting ready to go to the promised land. Moses says, if you don't come, I'm not going. And they had this interaction back and forth. And it leads Moses to this place where this is his prayer. God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And God's response was, you want to see my glory? It's coming. It is going to be so radical that you're not going to believe it. In fact, I'm going to come before you, but because of my radiant holiness, you can't look at me. If you were to see my face, you would die instantly. So what I'm going to do for you, Moses, I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock, and I'm going to cover over you so that as I pass by, you don't even get a side glimpse of who I am. But when I am past you, even then, maybe, okay, then I'll let you see the, the back of me. But until then, you cannot look. You cannot look. Let me, let me tell you what my glory is. I need to describe it to you, Moses. Do you know what he says? He doesn't say, I'm so shiny, I'm so bright, I'm so holy, I'm so transcendent, I'm so eternal. This is what God says when Moses asks to see his glory. Exodus chapter 34, verse 5. As God passed in front of him, he proclaimed, the Lord 
The Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful covenant love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. It's exactly what David quoted in verse 8. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and great in faithful love. Yes, God is absolute in his power. He is pure in his holiness. Yet there is no greater manifestation of his glory than his compassion for sinners. There's fewer places in all of Scripture that picture that compassion more clearly than the story of Hosea. Hosea is found after Daniel. It's one of the first of the 12 minor prophets. Hosea is the story of this prophet who, who gets called to the worst ministry assignment ever. When the Lord first began speaking to Israel through Hosea, he said to Hosea, go and marry a prostitute? Uh, if it was me, I'd be like, all right, I'm going back at the end of the line. Maybe when I come through, you can give me another assignment. I don't, I'm not picking that ministry. He says, no, I want you to marry a prostitute. So he obeys. Hosea married Gomer, which makes it even worse. That's her name. Um, there's no Gomers here, right? Just checking. Be my luck. <laughs> but it's a family name. Uh, so Hosea married Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim. She became pregnant. She gave Hosea a son. And I'm not going to get into all the names, which is, which is remarkable to study as well. But Hosea obeys. Hosea obeys and marries a prostitute. And, then, and he genuinely tries to love her. And you get through all of chapter 1 in the book of Hosea. And what you find is they are, they're starting a family. And you can tell it's not going great by the names the kids have. But, but he's trying. But then you get to chapter 2 of Hosea. And Gomer has gone back to her old profession. Now she's cheating on Hosea. And eventually, she leaves Hosea for a man who's paying her for sex. As you read chapter 2, you get the, the heavy impression that this man actually begins mistreating her and abusing her. Hosea pleads with her to come home. I love you, come home. But she refuses. Hosea gets the place. He's so concerned about Gomer's well-being, that he begins taking money to this man and giving it to him to purchase what she needs to live, to be able to eat well, to be cared for well. And what this man does, he takes his money and then he spends it on worshiping Baal. Now eventually, this guy gets tired of Gomer and then he decides he's going to try to sell her back into the sex slave trade market. He's going to auction her off. And God comes to Hosea again with, with another command in Hosea chapter 3. He says to Hosea, go and love your wife again, even though she commits adultery with another lover. <laughs> what? This is a real guy. Real feelings. You want me to do what? You, you want me to go back to her? She's done nothing but humiliate me. 
I've done everything I could possibly do for her, and all she does is hurt me, reject me. She left me. She embarrasses me. Why in the world would I go get her? That's got to be running through your brain, but Hosea does exactly what God tells him to do. In verse th- chapter 3, verse 2, he says, I bought her back for 15 pieces of silver, five bushels of barley, and a measure of wine. Okay, for us, we're like, that's okay, weird. But know this. Scholars say that's half price for a slave. There's a lot of people trying to understand why, why did he only pay half price? Now, there's a couple of reasons. One, it could be because she is such a used piece of goods that nobody wants her, so he's getting a discount. That's very possible. But the second one is this. Hosea has spent all his money on her already. So all he has is these, these 15 pieces of silver, but I know you need more. Hey, take some barley, take some wine. Maybe that'll balance it out. He's, he's spent everything to bring her home. Why would he spend everything to bring her home? Because what God's doing in Hosea's life is not lecturing his people. Instead, he's giving them a living example of what it means when God says, I will pursue you. Look at Hosea 11, verse 8. This is God speaking about Israel, the the nation, the people who've known him, who've experienced his goodness in their life, and yet they have turned their back on him. How can I give you up, Israel? How can I let you go? My heart is torn within me. My compassion overflows. Folks, that is a picture of the glory of God. The glory of God is a picture. God is this glorious one who loves us with a compassion we can't even begin to understand. You can hear it in his voice, the desire to be, to present, be present with his people. He's, he's pursuing them. He's constantly going after them, much like Hosea was constantly going after Gomer, trying to get her to come home. Go again, Hosea. Go again, Hosea. Go again, Hosea. You, you, can fall, you can fail, you can even run, but God is going to continue to pursue you. What if I keep rejecting him? Okay, let's be honest. He's not going to force himself on you. He's not going to force you to trust in him. He's not going to force you to return. Scripture is clear. You can, you can harden your heart. You can reject him. But I want you to know this. If you reject him, if you choose to harden your heart, the last voice you hear as you step into the abyss is the voice of God saying, you don't have to. I'm right here. Come back to me. That's the God we should stand in awe of. The God who loves, the God who saves, the God who is merciful and compassionate. The glory of God is that he is free to do as he wishes. And as he wishes, what he wishes in all of his power, his greatness, his majesty, is to be gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and great and faithful love to those who don't deserve it to those people like Gomer, to those people like you, those people like me. 
That should cause us to stand in awe. Father, I pray that in these last few moments of our time together this morning, that as we consider your glorious compassion, that we would simply be in awe of who you are. In awe of the fact that you love us with that kind of love, that kind of compassion, that kind of mercy. I pray for the one who might be with us this morning who's running. Father, I pray they would hear your crystal clear voice to return. I pray for the one who thinks they've run too far. God, I pray they would understand that God delights in showing mercy to those who don't deserve it. And that's why every single one of us, any of us, could actually even be here. So Lord, I I pray that our prayer would be, show me your glory, God. But that today we would recognize the fact that, that your favorite way to manifest your glory is by showing us compassion, love, and mercy that we don't deserve. May we bathe in that today. I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for his his perfect life, his sacrificial death. I thank you for his glorious resurrection. It's in his matchless name I pray.